Acts chapter 3. Last time we were here, two weeks ago, we saw Peter and John confront a beggar who was lame in his feet for over 40 years. They said, Peter said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up, and he did. This became the occasion for Peter's second sermon. And so we began to hear, to study, to learn, to receive the Apostle Peter's second sermon. Our reading this morning will be Acts 3, verse 11 through 26. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we open our Bibles, we pray that you would be pleased to open our hearts, open our minds. Father, we confess our great weakness. Lord, how weak we are before the task of earth, how much greater must be our weakness before the task of heaven. But Lord, you are gracious, you are good, you are mighty and powerful. We simply need what you have for our help. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, by his mercy, by his might, grant that your spirit would help us to hear, to understand, to believe, to obey. Oh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for all this. Amen. Acts chapter 3, verse 11 through 26 The message this morning will deal with verses 11 through 16, and we'll finish Peter's sermon next Sunday morning. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico, called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoration, until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Isn't that one of the great blessings of your life, Christian? That you have been turned from a life of wickedness? What a gift that has only come to you at the expense of Christ's life. But it has come to you, for it is the will of God. Well, in our reading today, we hear Peter's second sermon. In the city of Jerusalem, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if the day Peter preached this sermon was still Pentecost, that Jewish feast day, then this was a Sunday sermon, 50 days after Passover. But this was not yet what we would call a prepared sermon in a regularly called worship service. That kind of order, that kind of habit would come later. This was a spontaneous evangelistic sermon. And the occasion for it was the sudden miraculous healing of a man who had been crippled from the day he was born. Acts 4.22 tells us the man had been lame for over 40 years. But the day he met the two apostles, Peter and John, in the temple at Jerusalem, that day changed his life. It was the first day he ever walked on his own two feet. This miracle was a demonstration of the divine rule, the divine power, the divine mercy of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus gave some of his eternal strength to this man as a sign. And we'll come to that before we're done. Peter refused, verse 11 and 12 say, refused to exploit this miracle to his own advantage. He signed no autographs that day, not Peter. He sold no trinkets that day. He built no shrine that day. He passed out no business cards promoting the family fishing enterprise. He refused all praise, Peter did. He refused all adoration of men. He rejected it. Peter did only one thing with this miracle. He preached Christ. That's what he did. A miracle is useless to men if it doesn't lead to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Peter preached the salvation of God to sinful men. He did not even preach the miracle. He had nothing to say about ligaments and ankles. He had nothing to say about physiology with the feet. He preached 
the salvation of God to sinful men. Peter knew this miracle had one purpose, to promote the Lord Jesus as Savior of sinners. A miracle is not for the promotion of men. A miracle is not for the promotion of a place. They didn't bring out cones and start building something like Peter once himself wanted to do on the Mount of Transfiguration. Wherever and whenever the power of God has been demonstrated, it should make us want to hear the preaching of Christ as Savior of sinners. Beloved, you should always be asking yourself, always ask yourself this, do I need to hear preaching or do I need to see a wonder? This is the Lord's wonder, but it quickly fades into the background and preaching of Christ steps forward and that will remain after the apostolic age is passed, the preaching of Christ. Ask yourself, do I need to hear preaching or do I need to see a wonder? Am I a miracle chaser or am I a preaching listener? Do I want to hear about Christ or do I want to see something unusual? The scripture says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is quite interesting, in Matthew chapter 11, our Lord Jesus uses the situation that's happening to John the Baptist to challenge the crowds around him about this very thing, Matthew 11. John had just been arrested, so Jesus explained how seeing was not that useful compared to hearing. Three times in a row, staccato style, in Matthew 11, our Lord Jesus puts the question to the crowd, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Then, very next verse, what then did you go out to see? Then, very next verse, what then did you go out to see? Jesus was making the point that their fascination to go see John's wild and unusual lifestyle was not enough. John was now in prison. What is there to see now, is the Lord's point. Jesus then says that it was John's preaching that you needed, not watching John eat grasshoppers. So Jesus says right after those three questions, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Beloved, what are you chasing? The man who was healed, he never speaks in the scriptures. We never get to listen to him being interviewed. We never get to see his parents on television, crying and telling sentimental stories about his childhood. What we get In Scripture is the preaching of Christ. And by this, Peter confirms that hearing is better than seeing. Even though this is God's wonder, it gives way to God's word. The wonder will make no sense. The wonder will be perverted if the word doesn't interpret it. One day, the man of this miracle is going to die. 
he did. His feet failed him again. But there is a life. There is a life in one who has already died and has been raised from death. He is the one to hear. He is the one who cannot fail us. He is the one to be united to everlastingly and have his life as our own, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look more closely at what Peter actually said in his preaching. Peter has two major movements in this sermon. He didn't sit down to plan it out, but it came out. It came out beautifully under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. Two major movements. Movement one is found in verses 11 through 16. Movement two is found in verses 17 through 26, which we'll dig into a little more closely next Lord's Day. Now, Peter's first move in 11 through 16 is to bring into the light the lawlessness and the corruption and the wickedness of the Jews living in Jerusalem. That's what his first move is all about. Peter will tell them the bad news, which they have not been able to tell themselves. They are guilty of the most horrific crime. None of them are telling one another that. The Lord's apostle must tell them. They have crucified the Lord of glory, the Christ of God. And that is Peter's point in 11 through 16. But as soon as Peter pulls all this into the light, he immediately makes his second move. He tells the condemned good news. He tells them that even though they are terrible people and they have done what terrible people do, there is forgiveness of sin for them. There is forgiveness of sin and a sure hope of future everlasting blessedness. That's what he tells them in 12, or excuse me, 17 through 26. Peter tells them that the very one who they cursed and cast out and put to death, that one, he has returned through the resurrection to bless them and gather them into his kingdom of life. These rascals, these criminals, these wicked men, Christ has come to them to gather them into his eternal kingdom of life and love and righteousness. That's 17 through 26. Now, before we take another step in this first movement, let's appreciate this entire structure of this sermon. Peter brings into the light man's great sin against God so he can bring the good news of God's salvation in Christ to sinful man. He doesn't just do one of those. He does both. That is the structure. It is a structure given by the Holy Spirit to the apostle, and it is a structure endorsed by the Holy Spirit being recorded in Scripture. This is the structure of true gospel ministry. This is the structure of true Christian worship. This is the structure of true Christian prayer. What does this structure reveal? Well, beloved, it reveals there will be no true and real taking of Christ by faith unless there is a true 
and real accounting of sin. If our sin is not brought into the light, we will not see Christ as a Savior in the light. Christ will remain a shadowy figure to us if we try to relate to him without regard to our sin. If we try to relate to him as a teacher only, as an example only, as a philosopher only, as a moral exemplar only, he will remain a shadowy figure to us if we don't relate to him chiefly, foundationally, desperately, as a savior of sinners. Until we see ourselves in desperate need of his high office, a priest of God for sinners, we won't love him freely from the heart. I put a little quote in your bulletin today by a now-deceased preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he said on this same matter. There is no greater sin than to feel that as you than to feel that you are fit to stand in the presence of God. It means that you have no conception of the glory, majesty, and holiness of God. It means that you have a little God of your own, which you have conjured up in your mind. Peter will not allow it, because Peter's ministry is a ministry of salvation. He knows that he must pull the criminal heart, the crucifying heart, the murderous heart into the light and let his fellow Jews who he keeps calling brethren with so much charity he knows he must let them know who they really are before God the holy one, the righteous one or else they will not embrace Christ as a savior complimenting them and making their sin light is the ministry of false prophets Jeremiah said who say peace, peace when there is no peace Jeremiah said the false prophet dresses the wounds of God's people lightly and leaves them without salvation. So the structure reveals everything about Christian ministry. If our sins rest upon us lightly, like dust or like the crumbs of a sandwich, then Christ will rest upon us lightly, not as a Savior. He will be something to us, for sure, but not a Savior, not our salvation. But the apostles give to us the whole Christ. They bring Christ out of the shadows. You're going to see this again and again in the preaching in the book of Acts. They bring the whole Christ out of the shadows, the Christ who is God, mediator for sinners, fragrant offering for sinners, sacrifice to God for sinners, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, the eternal life for the dead in sin. Now, the integrity of Peter's structure in his preaching is all for the honor of Christ to gather his inheritance his church, his people, to save his people from their sins, as we are told in the gospel birth narrative. Now let's do go a little further and look more closely at Peter's first move in this sermon, verses 11 through 16. The first movement is the bad news movement. 
the bad news. This is where Peter sets the true weight of their sin upon them. And in verse 13 is where he really gets into it. He says to the Jews of Jerusalem that, quote, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is Peter's first way of answering the question, how is this lame man walking again? He immediately sets the context that the Jews in front of him can understand. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is the most stunning and hard truth Peter could have possibly said upon their ear. The God of their fathers has done the very opposite with Jesus to what they wanted to see done with Jesus. They wanted Jesus cursed and forgotten forever. But the God they claimed to know, the true and living God, the God of Abraham, the God they claimed to worship, in fact, the God for whom they are all gathering to the temple for, That God has exalted Jesus to the highest place, to the heavenly throne, by resurrection and ascension. We call it his exaltation. They thought Jesus was an imposter. But the almighty God, the God of Abraham, vindicated Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead, and seated Jesus in the place of a royal son at his right hand, the true heir of the divine kingdom. So Peter sets the full weight of their own God's approval, the true and living God. He sets the full weight of God's approval of Jesus upon their ear, hoping it will weigh upon their heart. He even uses the exact formulation Yahweh himself used, in the burning bush, when he first made himself known to Moses. Exodus 3, verse 6, Yahweh said, from a bush that was not consumed, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Peter knows that he is making known the God who has life in himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter says what he says in verse 13, he is accomplishing at least two things simultaneously. First, he is declaring to the Jews of of Jerusalem, he is declaring that Jesus, the glorified servant of God, is in perfect continuity with all the old ways and all the old purposes of God for the nation of Israel. Jesus is not starting a new religion. He's the servant of the God of Abraham. He's the servant of the God of Isaac. He's the servant of the God of Jacob. Jesus isn't breaking off from Israel. He is the hope of Israel. He is the hope of Abraham. Jesus himself said, Abraham longed to see my day. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise ever made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their children. And Peter wants the Jews of Jerusalem to understand that Jesus Christ is no upstart, no innovator of religion. He is the fullness to the answer to every desire and hope that God ever put in the heart of his people Israel. But there is a second reason Peter associates Jesus with the fathers of Israel. Of course, because it is true, but also because it is Jesus, not the fathers, whom God glorified. It is Jesus, not the fathers, whom God has glorified. Their glory will come in turn, but the first fruits, the firstborn, the son is glorified. The head is glorified first. The one whom they killed has received the highest honors from God. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not any of the fathers whom the Jews honored so highly received the honor God showed his servant Jesus. Think of it this way. What would happen if Abraham or Isaac or Jacob started walking around Jerusalem in the first century? What if when one of those, when those tombs opened up after the Lord's resurrection, you can read about it in Matthew, some of the dead came out of their tombs and were seen walking about in the city of Jerusalem? What if Abraham or Isaac or Jacob were found in the first century strolling the streets of Jerusalem? the Jews would be throwing themselves at their feet. The Jews would be giving away their children to them out of honor. They would have kissed the dirty toes of Abraham if that happened. They would have washed the heels of Isaac with their tears of joy. They would have thrown their body onto the ground for Jacob to walk over them to keep his feet clean. That's what they would have done. But none of those men were glorified by God. Only one was glorified. The pious of God is the Greek word, P-A-I-S, for transliteration. It's the word that is used in your Bible to refer to a young servant who has taken many beatings. It's not the traditional word for servant, doulos which is often used in the New Testament, but it's the servant son, the one who's been beaten, who's been scourged, that one who seemed that nobody wanted to look at him. He has been glorified before all the patriarchs, ahead of them, above them. He is the Lord. The Lord glorified his servant Jesus just as he promised he would in the prophets. Centuries before, the prophet Isaiah had this to say about that which Peter is now speaking as fulfilled. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Isaiah 52, 13. Beloved, this is the passage the Jews would have known. They know that Peter is declaring Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of God, exalted in glory to bless the nations. So why? Why did the Jews of Jerusalem reject the very one whom God glorified? We find the answer to this question in what remains of verse 13 and in verse 14 and in verse 15. Notice what Peter says. He says the Jews of Jerusalem delivered Jesus over to death and denied Jesus before Pilate, even though Pilate had already decided to release Jesus. The Jews said, don't do that. John 19.12 says this explicitly. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, close quote. Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine, the leading state authority in Judea, Pilate had decided to release Jesus Christ because, as he himself said, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, verse 4. But the Jews of Jerusalem, hearing that, pressed Pilate for an execution. They did not want Pilate to release Jesus. Here's how the whole ugly thing unfolded. It's described in Matthew 27. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. That's Pilate who knew. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Then later, after our Lord had been flogged and the crown of thorns pressed upon his head, Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews again. He says, Behold your king. Then John 19.15 reports, They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Why did the Jews want a murderer, Barabbas, instead of the holy and righteous one? Why did they want to kill the author of life? Or your translation may say the prince of life, meaning the one who has life in himself and is the source of all life that cannot be taken away, the eternal life. Why would they want to kill him? As John Chrysostom put it, him who had killed others, you asked to be released. Him who quickens them that are killed, you did not wish to have. Why? Because they did not want, this is so key, because this is going to come home to us, 
because they did not want to lose ground in the world. That's why. They did not want Jesus drawing the attention of men away from themselves. That was their envy that Pilate knew about. And they did not want the Roman Empire to think of them as disloyal to the cause of Caesar. John eleven forty eight says, If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That was the backroom discussion, hatching a plan to get Christ crucified by the Jewish leaders. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Beloved, because of sin's blindness, sin is always blinding you, by the way. Because of sin's blindness, the Jews of Jerusalem wanted their blessedness to be in what Paul calls this present evil age, Galatians 1. Because of sin's blindness, the blessedness of the age to come was useless to them, of no interest to them. They wanted a blessedness in the present evil age without faith in the risen Christ. No light from resurrection glory was shining in their hearts. The age to come where the glorified Christ rules and reigns in mercy and power, that age was no consolation to them at all. They couldn't see its light. But let's think about this for a minute and think about ourselves. The heart in Jerusalem in the first century, on that day before Pilate, the heart that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, is the same heart that despises Jesus Christ today. That murderous heart was not murderous because it was Jewish. Divest yourself of that notion if you have invested in that notion. It was a murderous heart because it was fallen and sinful and intoxicated with the self and dead in trespasses. That's all your heart can be when you are not united to the one who is life. And beloved, this heart abounds still today among men. When people around you say, let's talk about Jesus, let's read about Jesus, let's go and worship the Lord Jesus. When people around you say, let's meditate on the law of Jesus. When they say, let's fellowship with Christ and his body. When they say, let's draw near to Jesus in prayer and praise. Whenever people hear that, all those invitations, and when they despise those invitations, they are despising the glory of the risen Christ. They are denying him. Their heart is in the same blackened, spiritually dead condition of the hearts that cried, crucify him in Jerusalem. It's fascinating that Peter, in this first movement of his sermon, says they killed the author of life. Well, I thought they were just at a protest. 
I thought they just, you know, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but saying crucify can never hurt me. The Romans drove the, drove the spikes. No, no. Heart murder. They're guilty of it. And every heart that does not see the glory of the risen Christ and wants an earthly blessedness is despising and denying and delivering him over to death again. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, we trample him under our feet and crucify him all over again. If we despise the glory of the risen Christ and the glory of his enthronement at the right hand of God and the glory of his coming kingdom of truth and righteousness and life, we will despise everything designed to draw attention to him. And we will despise everything designed to lead us away from seeking blessedness in this evil age. Some people never come to Christ as a savior because they are always checking him out from a distance to see if there is some way he might help them not lose ground in the world. And they're not sure yet he'll be able to help them, so they stay back. So they are waiting to see if Jesus will find them a husband or find them a wife. They are waiting to see if Jesus will rescue and perfect their marriage. They are waiting to see if Jesus will make their family picture perfect. Some are waiting to see if Jesus will lead them into their dream job. Or they are waiting to see if Jesus will help them win the Super Bowl ring, literally. Or some other championship in sports. All these people... Even in their wait-and-see approach with Jesus, they are despising him with a crucifying heart because they see Jesus as only useful for earthly blessedness. And they despise the invisible blessedness and luminosity of his eternal glory, which the Father God of Abraham bestowed upon him. And beloved, this is a great 21st century crime. But what then of the sign? What then of the sign of the lame man who was healed? Verse 16. Finally, well, I don't like to say finally to Peter. Peter gets to the answer. How is it that a 40-plus-year-old cripple is leaping and praising God on the feet of of a much younger man. Verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. This is called a sign in the next chapter. It is a sign of the glorified servant, Jesus Christ. It is a sign of his readiness 
and willingness and his joy to share the strength of his glory with those who have faith in him. Don't leave the faith out of the sign. The glory of the risen Christ is shared unto the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening unto eternal life and healing for all who have faith in him. And we might say, well, how can that be? You have just told us how dangerous it is to desire earthly blessedness. How can a man receiving the earthly blessedness of skip-a-foot healing, how can he be a sign of eternal blessedness? Because he's a sign. He is not a testimony that we will all be healed in this temporary life. But he is a testimony that we will all be healed by the strength of the glory of the servant of God, Jesus Christ. We will be healed and stay healed forever in his glorious kingdom. Healed of our sin debt. Healed of our corruption. Healed of our misery, decay, and death. He is a sign of it. Scripture tells us This man's healing was a sign, given temporary healing in this age so that we might know what is the taste of the age to come, so that we might yearn and hunger for the age when all things are restored, as Peter's going to get to in the second half of the sermon, that we might see all our blessedness in the age to come and see very little of it in this present age and not leave the pilgrim trail. Beloved, I have good news for you today. Are you you a Christ denier? Are you somebody who sees Jesus Christ as the finest piece of art that you own? You would never set him on the ground. You would never forget about him in a cold, wet, icy garage. Now, he's the finest piece, the finest painting you own. You hang him prominently in your house, but you're a Christ denier. Is that you? Because you never go and live in that painting. You stand outside of it, contemplating it, hoping that somehow by keeping it from house to house, carrying it around with you for the rest of your life, maybe The Jesus you have conjured in your mind, an earthly blessedness, Jesus, will somehow help you advance in this world. And you are still outside of him. You still are crucifying him. You are a Christ murderer. I have really good news for you today. Jesus Christ has been glorified to come and hunt down like a hound all Christ murderers, and testify to them through repentance. Their sins will be blotted out, and they can be forgiven, and they can overcome their wickedness and be united to the glory of God's servant, Jesus Christ, forever. Young people, I sat in churches when I was young, and I was a Christ denier until I was 19. 
one of the things that would have really helped me is what I'm about to say to you. The greatest crime you can commit against God is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in that quote. Think of yourself as not needing a savior for your wretched sins. You must not deny Christ. He does not want you to compliment him. He wants you to believe upon him and cling to him and rejoice in him and boast in him and share in his eternal glory. Don't deny Christ by thinking that Jesus is going to just be another great painting I'm going to drag around in my life, and perhaps he'll help me from losing my place in this world. Perhaps he'll find me a wife, get me a job. Beloved, he gives you something better. He gives you his life, his glory, his kingdom. You shall be brought to it. It is enough. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you would come, as you have come to us believers, come to all who are here today, who are Christ deniers, Christ crucifiers yet. Father, we pray for any among us who have not come to the Savior as a Savior for their sins. We pray for any like that who are still wanting their blessedness to be in this present evil age, an age condemned, an age under the judgment of God, an age that will not be rehabilitated. The resurrection of Christ is the keyhole to the age to come. Oh, Lord, come to those who are dead in their sins and give them life. Give them faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Raise them up from their death. Quicken their spirit. Make them alive. Make them believers. And Father, for all of us who know our proneness to wander and seek our blessedness in this present evil age, let us see again that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has glorified his servant, Jesus. And Lord, let us long and wait in all holiness for the time of restoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.